You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. But how, how did you uh, get into this? Is this something you always wanted to do, was right, or you've sort of backed into it? It's a serious question. All right. Well, oh, serious. All right. Um, well, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. And then um, I sort of got dragged into being a writer inadvertently because I always wrote. And, uh, and I thought, oh, it would be... always wrote mean? It means it's sort of like breathing. <laughs> Like, you just have to write things down. You just think up worlds and you have to write things down. And uh, my mom always tells a story of when I was, because I was a reader, um, as if I didn't like the ending of a book, I would rewrite it. <laughs> Particularly if it was a sad ending. Um, I should tell you something you about the series. sadder or happy? No, no, no. Always happy ending. She just add vampires. <laughs> always funny, always comedic. Um, so I was on a fast track to academia, and uh, I was working on my PhD. Where? At uh, UC Santa Cruz. Okay. Um, and uh, I sort of, I developed really severe carpal tunnel, and I'd written a couple of books, a couple of different series, and I'd written this one and sent it out. And the doctor said, you have bad cover tunnel, and, and so you get to choose. You can either write a thesis, or you can write more books. And it was kind of like... Good the, choice. Yes. <laughs> the ultimate choice. And, um, and I spent about a week crying on a couch, trying to figure out what to do with my life. And um, then I got a book contract. Yeah. And I, I figured the fates were telling me something. The thesis was in what? Uh, archaeology in oh, okay. materials analysis. But you're always writing like narrative fiction. Yeah, I used to. Write, I wrote a bunch of short stories. I've always had some sort of novel I was working on that did would be nice. Did you sell the short stories? Or? I did, but they're under my real name. All right, but mm-hmm. you don't have to tell us your real Gasp. name, no. Joe. But <laughs> uh, did you sell them uh, to to? Fantasy publisher? Uh, yeah, I sold to Marion Zimmer Bradley's Sword and Sorceress. Oh, cool. All right. So you had some... Uh, so you didn't yeah, and just I've jump hung, into the field? No, I've hung out in fandom since okay. I was first dragged to a convention at age you know, 16 or something. Right. Um, right. So, right. yeah. It's cool. my world. I, at least I like to think it's my world. Um, yeah, so I, I was faced with the, the choice, and then the book contract came down, and I figured that the fates were telling me which choice I was to make. Um, I also hate teaching. <laughs> and I figured you, if you're going to do that for the rest of your life, you ought to like it at least a little bit. <laughs> um, and, of course, I love writing. So cool. it turned out to be not that bad of a choice. Not bad at all. Uh, Blake, we had some of your experience in this, but you said yourself that uh, that you were you had a hard time reading and then you got into it. I noticed when you were reading, you, had, you followed it down with a card. Is that a about dyslexia or just how people some people read that way anyway I think it's just me getting nervous and I'll jump around so that's uh, not all over the place that's not part of the deal no well I guess the question is so how did I get into it yeah well storytelling like uh, storytelling always came very natural to me but writing came even very late I was always I was never very good at writing certainly so what was the storytelling you mean just telling lies to your parents or (laughs) was it your actual storytelling yeah I I actually continue that one when they call (laughs) and they say you know how much is your rent and I say well funny you should ask that <laughs> um, yeah so you remember my sister 
Um, <laughs> I was always I was babbling along, and I, I'd, I'd say, hey, Genevieve, write this down, write this down. And, uh, you know, once there were, you know, two ice giants. And um, she would be, uh, and she would start writing. And later I found out she actually wasn't writing anything I said. Uh, <laughs> she was writing in her own diary. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to show it to your little dyslexic brother. What's he going to do? I mean... <laughs> But so I was always telling stories. I always, I always loved it. I'm, I'm, I'm usually that guy at the, at the bar that is like, oh yeah, that reminds me about this one time. And actually, Gail and I write together since we live together. And, and uh, she's under strict uh, instructions that if I start like blabbing off, she takes a parasol and just. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I've you, done it. You write together. What does that mean? Uh, she sits on one side of the table and writes, and I sit on the other side of the table and writes. It's very that, exciting. That's I mean, <laughs> they should do reality TV about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, but that does. Ha- I remember uh, uh, Kim Stanley the Robinson and uh, Karen Fowler write like that. They would go when they lived together in, in the same town in uh, Davis. They would go to a cafe and they would both uh, write together. And then they go home and they would write in longhand. Do you write in longhand or on a computer? I switch back and forth. You do? Yeah, well, because if I write in a computer, all my spelling errors show up in red, and then that slows me down. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm retarded. But if I write in longhand, I can just kind of go, right? But I know that's unusual. All right. So, but now, was had you published anything before this? Um... I had one novella, uh, which was called End of Symbiont, uh, which was published in, uh, by John Joseph Adams in an anthology called uh, Seeds of Change. It's a hard science fiction about a young girl that thinks she has brain cancer. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. I just wanted to open... I was just interested in where these guys came from because they're both... Uh, don't have a, a long... Although you have somewhat of a deeper history in the field, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, yeah. I grew up in the field, but as a writer, it's relatively recent for me. Yeah, okay. So, did anybody have a, a question for either one of these people? Yes. When she thinks about it, if her books were to be um, uh, end up uh, under Hollywood's, uh, <laughs> say you, mean, you mean when? <laughs> when her wonderful, humorous, amazing books um, end up under Hollywood's domain, who has she fantasized playing the players? Uh. <laughs> the ultimate casting question. Oh. Um, so she wants to know who I would cast in the roles of my characters from Hollywood, and I, um, I've, I've, I've gotten to play on this a couple of times. I got interviewed for my book, The Movie, which is a blog where you get to sort of pick these out. So I have put some thought into it. Um, And uh, my passion is for BBC costume character actors. So I tend to pull people who are actually not Hollywood, which means fat chance (laughs) if it ever happens. Um, But uh, I actually had a really, I, I knew pretty clearly in my head who I wanted for most of the male characters, but I had a really hard time with the female characters, and Alexia in particular, and I spent a lot of time jumping about through uh, British character actors trying to find my Alexia, Um, and I ended up for both her and Ivy, who was my other really difficult one, with um, Australian slash New Zealand actors instead. And I really like Claudia Black for Alexia, um, who you may know from Farscape. Um, she has the right profile, although she must eat something. <laughs> it's about eight Devon cream teas, and then we'll talk about it. Um, and then uh, Melanie Linsky for Ivy, and Melanie is uh, 
heavenly creatures you may know from that or she's one of the wicked stepsisters in the Drew Barrymore Ever After Cinderella movie was she's she the Kate's friend in heavenly creatures yeah she's the dark haired one um, she kind of has the right facial features for me and the sort of slightly high breathy voice and I really that was what I want for Ivy so those were the two hard ones and then um, I have a lot of different choices for Lord Macan. I think there are a lot of men out there who could do him justice um, but my preference is for Sean Bean uh, who is Sharp's Rifles fame uh, although he'd have to have contacts and dark hair of course but he has the kind of large really scruffy thing going for him and uh, and then I like what's his name I can't remember uh, Kevin McKidd for Lyle who's now on um, some television show involving medical stuff <laughs> that Grey's Anatomy um, <laughs> but who I actually picked because of Rome. I, I thought he was wonderful in Rome. So those are my main players, I think. And of course, I, I figured it everybody else too, but it, I'm never going to get this because uh, if it sells to Hollywood, you don't get any BBC actors. Woe is me. Uh, but that's a big if. <laughs> so, so it was very lucky to end up with Angelina Jolie. Yes, exactly. It's going <laughs> to... Oh. Exactly. Seems like a... I'll cry for you every night. When, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, right, a bald one. What's your casting? For, for, I, uh, for I, your um, book, what's uh, your casting? Angelina Jolie. No. As Nicodemus. Is she in your? Is she going to play Nicodemus? That'd be interesting. Actually, <laughs> I think that'd get more internet time. Actually, <laughs> don't you? I think I would. This seems like a most backward exercise <laughs> to me. Right? Does somebody have a cell phone? Will somebody call Johnny Depp for me? Call him up. I am a. Well, and I have a question for both of you. What is the, why is it that the Victorian age has suddenly become the ground zero of um, speculative fiction these days? It seems to me like it's, is this a steampunk phenomenon or, or what's going on here? So, uh, Gail, if it's okay, I'd actually, oh, I'd like to answer this question as you. <gasps> oh. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, sure, go for it. And so I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, I just, I brought a little something here. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. The cravats. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> that was it. That's all. That's all. That was. It's the fashion, right? That's I mean, the oh yeah, it's all about the fashion. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, you want a serious answer to this? Yeah, I'm, look, I know nothing about I look it. Like I'm, I'm a serious guy. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, I think Poor it Terry. has to do with the economic chaos that's going on right now, and I think um, sort of whether it's acknowledged or not, people are hunting for a time period that was more controlled and regulated um, and filled with manners and class and segregation and everybody knew where they stood. And so, yeah. uh, I, and so I think that the uh, Victorian era is very appealing because of the surety um, in which it stood. And of course, the irony of this choice on the part of Americans in particular is that it was the last major influx of progress and um, technological change, much in the way that we are experiencing it now with a computer, and that it was, in fact, very kind of chaotic and difficult for the people in the day to control. Um, and so uh, that's sort of the irony of the choice. But that's my, my little pet theory. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Does anybody else uh, agree? Silence. <laughs> 
That means you all disagree. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that uh, that makes a, it just seems odd to me. The, I don't quite get the steampunk thing. And um, yeah, Tom. Bob. Bob, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just go with the, the anti-modernity. Yeah, it has. No more clean lines. That. No more what? All that clean line stuff is boring. Everything hidden away in a little silver box. Um, this the steampunk movement, as an as not as a literary movement, but as a um, sort of aesthetic movement, is rebelling against the idea of invisible technology, and they're bringing technology to the front again and turning it into something beautiful that you can see and that you can see the workings of, and that you can understand how it works and uh, and its movement. But it's also steampunk is also tied to the maker movement and the green movement and the found reuse DIY movement. So it has its fingers in a lot of different pies of things that are all going on right now and have and just putting the Victorian aesthetic on top of it um, is kind of this other level. And I think um, it, the advantage of that is that it makes it kind of appealing to all different age groups and all different genders as well. So there's, I think there's a lot going on with steampunk. We'll see how long it lasts, but there's certainly a lot going on with it. Can I say something self-defeating here? Yeah. So um, oh. I think the other thing that's happening there is that kind of those of us that work in ye old middle ages, uh, there's just a lot of us, and it's been happening for a long time. And I think, you know, uh, the Victorian era there, you know, it's too bad, but there are no broadswords, and I think people are kind of relieved by that. So, <laughs> it know. is nice to start setting science fiction. Although chainmail could make it the could ultimate accessory. Yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. But you know, it's nice to uh, for a writer to start toying with a genre that has dirigibles floating around. It has flight and mechanical movement and all of the and clockwork movement and all these other things that uh, if you are a medieval based. Whenever you say dirigible, it sounds so suggestive to me. Sorry, baby. <laughs> so it's a technology. So uh, that's interesting because it is a technological age. In many ways, more openly technological than ours. Because as you say, a lot of our technology is invisible. Is kind of invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's uh, that. That makes I, that's a serious answer. I like that. Because Sorry, uh, I won't do it again. Good job. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You've broken the Q and A. Remember. That it, it, you know, uh, any sufficiently tech, uh, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. To a lot of people today, okay. what's that? This is a piece of magic. It's a phone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a phone, but it's a ma it's magic. You don't know why it works. You just know it does. So it's magic. Steampunky thing. A steam locomotive. It's very obvious why it works. You can see where all the parts are and where everything moves. A diesel locomotive is just a box that magically rolls down the railroad tracks. And that's where it's, that's where it's, now people, <coughs> actually people are like looking for more certainty, but it's very uncertain the fact that all of these magic things happen all around me. And I, and that, I bet you that could probably lead people to unsure, uh, uh, what's the wrong, not unsure, unsure, I lost the word there. I think that's it. That's interesting because, you know, I, I'm often, I'm a science fiction writer myself. I'm not what you call a, well, I actually and am. the fantasy a, writers have you flanked. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think of myself as a hard science fiction writer because it's hard to write, it's hard to read, and it's hard to sell. <laughs> but no, but I mean, even though I'm, I'm not really a hard science fiction writer, I'm part of that crowd. And uh, you know, an old timer in a way, and it and 
I think what what all of you are saying is true. It's not the Victorian thing is not a retrograde movement. It's a way to reclaim the sort of technological edge of science fiction away from you know like quantum physics and and stuff that we don't pretend to understand. Because the thing about classic science fiction. You pretended to understand it, even if you didn't, you know. And that I, I like that. I like what you said too. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're here to talk about literature, right? <laughs> there, isn't that right? A search for certainty. That was what I was. That was the word I was looking for. By the way. Yeah. yeah. The other, the other, another aspect is longevity as well. Um, the idea that uh, these machines of the Victorian age in particular were ones that were built to last a very long time. And our machines... Like the Titanic? Like, well... <laughs> and Zing! <laughs> until faced with an ice... I would like to point out that that's not the Victorian era. Right, Zing. you're right. <laughs> oh, damn. I would like to point out that I think we're still living in the Victorian era. But anyway, um, all right. But uh, in, as opposed to our modern technology, which are these small little objects that are built to have pl- planned obsolescence and you throw them away and it, and it is tied into the fact that you don't understand them. So you can't fix them yourself. So you have to throw them away and buy a new one. Um, so for in, on a, Steampunk is also kind of fighting that good fight to, to reclaim technology that has um, not just beauty but permanence. Cool. Yes, please. Well, just You're the librarian, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah. So this should be a good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a comment. You're so mean. I just wanted to build on what you're saying. I'm wondering also if it might be a reaction against um, the whole experience now of everybody being locked in their own little spheres with their iPods and their laptops and all of that, whereas the Victorian era, more civilized in some ways, you know, there's cl- classes and some people don't talk to one another, there's a lot more conversation. Well, we, we share ritualized socialization with the Victorian era. Our ritualized socialization now is just Facebook and Twitter, and theirs was calling cards and top hats. Um, so the, part of the appeal could be that there's a different kind of formalized interaction between people. Um, just to groove on the, sorry, on the Victorian thing, it's okay, man. Okay. I know you're used to it, though, so right? Uh, do you think maybe it's popular in the United States because in, in Great Britain, a lot of writers have, like, I'm thinking Michael Moorcock on, have written about the fall of empires because the British Empire is gone. But America, in, in America, the science fiction was always optimistic about the future and whatever. Well, the Brits and are pessimists. I mean, they're a whole nation of cynics. Well... <laughs> that aside, (laughs) because of the way the empire was, right? Do you think that the the popularity of Victoriana in the United States is partly because we've never outgrown the dream of empire, and so we relate? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Um, And you have, the the Victorian era England is comparable sort of society and culturally wise to our own right now with this ideas of expansion and um, I mean we have our own class system it happens to be mainly economically based but we do um, 
And so, yes, I think we see uh, it as a noble and fabulous time period as Americans. I think the Brits are a little bit more uh, realistic about their approach. To the approach. I mean, witness that it took them a couple of years to buy my book because <laughs> they're very deeply suspicious of uh, these sorts of things. Um, they don't like to be made fun of either. But uh, so, yeah, I think it's uh, that's another correlative reason why it's, it's appealing to us. They did eventually, yeah. Uh, sold snow to the Eskimos. Actually. I know, it was crazy. <laughs> they don't like to be made fun of? They don't like to be made fun of. And whether we like it or not, that's, I mean, these are spoofs, honestly. <laughs> yeah. So this one's for Blake, actually. We're Thank you, Fran. <laughs> <laughs> I paid her earlier. <laughs> Most definitely. So, I mean, I'm trying to write something called hard fantasy, which uh, is... Doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, well, we, ha we have these long fights about whether or not hard fantasy exists or not. So, it, it, for those not familiar with the, with the term, it basically means that you set down basic certain rules and that you always have to obey them and that, that magic isn't just fickle. You can't, you know, just turn somebody into a pickle. That rhymed. <laughs> because you'd be, you'd be violating mass and the conservation of mass and energy and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the inspiration for this book actually occurred to me one day when I was sitting in the most exciting of things, a biochemistry class. And uh, these very poetic, uh, the synthetic British biochemists, are all British biochemists very poetic? They, uh, I'm looking at the Brit I know is in the ground. Um, but they used to talk all the time about, you know, like, or, you know, Where's my British accent? Here's my British accent, you know, like, um, first you must learn the vocabulary, and, and your, your molecules are, or your vocabulary, then you must learn the grammar, and those are the reactions, and then you can write a chemical poem. A macromolecule <laughs> is a chemical poem. And you look at your DNA, and it's the longest poem ever written by anyone. And, um, <laughs> kind of is. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, and that's, I mean, here we're talking about, this guy won a, a Nobel Prize, by the way. This was at a big shot institution in the East Coast. And you're talking about a Nobel laureate talking about a chemical poem. It's magic. You know, science and magic, you know, I don't think you have, uh, Clark's Law is, you don't have to say sufficiently advanced technology. Technology is magic that follows rules. And so, I mean, that's really what I'm trying to do, is I, I really wanted this to be a science fantasy. And um, I think that's managed to piss everybody off. Because it's not either in one one category or the other, but there's value in that. Yeah, but wait a minute. All fantasy, the magic always follows rules. Exactly no. my point. Fantasy. Oh, I, yeah, sure there is. There is like Hogwarts. No aberrating in Hogwarts. What? <laughs> why not? Because it would ruin your plot. That's why not. That's the only reason why not. <laughs> you can't kill somebody with aber cadaver. cadaver. Okay, that one's illegal, but you can turn someone into, like, lettuce and feed them to slugs, and that's okay? Like, it, there's, it, it, it's, it's soft fantasy, which doesn't mean it's bad. I love Harry Potter, but it's soft. It's not hard. It's just like, it's just like Dune. Dune is soft. Sorry, I'm getting it. <laughs> I agree that Dune is soft. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's hard fantasy and there's soft fantasy. Like, how, how closely do you track to your rules, right? And it doesn't matter how, you know. It, okay. Well, see, I, I was having a... He's uh, always like this on the subject. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> just have to... When, when, when you were in your thing, I'm thinking, I, like you were talking earlier, and I thought, this is really interesting where you're talking about vision and sight. You know, the difference between vision and sight. 
But then I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is a uh, this is sort of Oliver Sacks country, you know, uh, dealing with with sure. actual hard science in terms of perception and consciousness. But then I'm wondering, so what do the arms have to do with this language thing? Well, how do how do you how what's the hard it didn't seem to work with your narrative that that people that the, that the magic <laughs> appears on the arm and then gets thrown oh. with a hand. Okay, so you were talking about how how is how is the magical language made in this world? Yeah. Okay, so uh, and that's not so I kind of just you know blaze right over that. But in this world, when you make the letters, you actually you make them in muscular t- tissue. So skeletal muscle tissue can produce these particular runes. Right. And I go into like, and I have a lot of fun describing how how that's done and why that's done. And that's just totally that's just like making up a, a different rule of physics, right? It doesn't really exist, but you know, you, once you make up the rule, you kind of have to follow it. Is my opinion. So, what do the hands have to do with? It? Oh, just that they move the things around. You're talking about when people would cast a spell yeah. and would pick yeah, it up. Yeah. Just that if you were going to move something around, you need another beer. Um, you would you toss it around with your hands. That's that's the only connection right. with the hands. All right. So. All right, it's a question because there's a there's a uh, it's one of these guys one of these Dennett type I've forgotten his name uh, uh, philosophers of consciousness says that that the the whole thing of consciousness and humans started with the with the hand that that the the that the brain had to develop to uh, to basically empower the hand to do all the stuff at once and, and that consciousness is sort of an unintended consequence. It's sort of a, a Stephen Gould idea. You know. I was going to make like some kind of lewd remark about teenage boys, but... Um, no. <laughs> but actually, I, I, that sounds... Yeah. I buy it. So it was, anyway, I was... I, the thing I got out of yours was that... that um, I thought it was really interesting you're doing... I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, and but I thought... Hogwarts at special ed at Hogwarts is a very original <laughs> idea. This is all of a sudden this is not some guy who's just playing on that field, you know. He's this is no till or something. This is something different, you know. And I thought I thought it was really cool. That was a cool idea. Thank but you. then I was looking for a more a hard SF a, a hard science thing to it. Well, and it, I, I can't spoil too much, but if you go further with it and about where language comes from and what, what, what life really is and the nature of language, I mean, in, uh, it's back to that chemical poem. Uh, I can't, uh, am I going to spoil? Um, there is a hard science fiction connection made at some point. And it's interesting because those people that are going to make the connection in the book make it right away. And I get all these emails being like, oh, wow, that me, you were trying to say this about that? And sorry to be obtuse. Um, <laughs> but then other people don't get it at all. And uh, that's fine. And they still, they still have a lot of fun. So um, I can't answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah go. All right. So uh, there's an interview on Gail's site. Um, between the two of you, or it's Gail interviewing Blake. Um, oh. oh. Yeah, you remember that? The written one. <laughs> okay. I was like, I have never audio interviewed him, although that is a comedy, like, gold. But, yes, yeah. go on. I mean, it's a little hard to explain, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very confrontational interview. And, uh, Blake actually takes control over the uh, internet that they're exchanging messages on. Yes, he did. I actually end-gailed. Yeah, he great. did. It was like, shocking. She's HTML code. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of so, fun. And then took over. Now that I... He was uh, very crass. Know that this didn't happen, presumably, across 3,000 miles of internet distance, but 
probably across the table. <laughs> <laughs> You're disappointed, right? Uh, maybe spoiled, but but I guess I'd maybe like to hear a little of the story behind that interview, um, if, if there is one that you could share. I think you should answer this one as me. Oh, okay, okay, I got it, right. Here we go. Wait a second. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think I, I can talk. To do with <laughs> <laughs> I have to talk really, really fast in order to answer this question because Blake is always really, really fast when he's talking. And I think the sum total of this was that Blake said to me, "You should interview me," and I said, "Okay, I should interview you." And then I sent him some questions, and then he engaled me, or yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That was pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, it was just a lark. Uh, you know, and there was there was a bunch of times when I was like, oh 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 oh, what if you know this? There or might, that. Yeah, yeah. There might have been some serious procrastination going on. Was, I think I was working on the third book and he was working on the second. Wait, one. I wanted to. Go, I went and like she's pretty good about stopping me when I get like like fixated on something. I like wanted to create a Wikipedia site just about this interview and link to <laughs> the interview and have it linked to because you the U of He's having a really that, hard like, time with his second book. No, it's almost done. <laughs> don't, don't spread these rumors. <laughs> no, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I love that idea of the Wikipedia site because what you have there is you have an interview that was actually hacked. Well, that's what I mean. That's what we were trying to do. But well, I wanted to do. But she was like, "No, we don't get paid for doing this." And I was like, "Oh." That that's you. <laughs> <laughs> rent that rent thing. <laughs> Yes, the iron fist of economy comes down, or the iron parasol comes down on Blake's head periodically. So you finished your third book. I have. It's turned in. I did the galleys. I would like to say at this juncture, I did not get to see the galleys of this book. So all errors are not my fault. That's all I have to say on the subject. Um, Yeah, for some reason, some snafu happened. They were really pushing it fast. Um, And the third one, I I was like, you you, mean there's proofing errors? Yes, yes. And I'm really anal about these things. But they're caught in the second run. So, Um, but yeah, I I, I I did get to see the galleys for the third one, and they're turned in, and that's it. It's out of my control. And And you just finished your second. Finishing. See what I say? Only ten thousand words left to go. (laughs) And uh, what's your? How do you work? Do you do you work uh, daily, weekly? How do you? So I'm on fellowship now, so I work daily, and I like I wake up sometime around noon, and I get dressed in my scrubs, and then I sit on my couch and I write until I can't stand it. And is that seriously wake up around noon? And I write till about three or four in the morning, and then. There are two hours of basketball with lots of swearing in Spanish in there in some way. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Come no, on. I'm serious too. That's like that's like that's what fellowship is. Anyway, are there any scientists here, like researchers? That's all you do. You just you just you work all the time. Really? It's really garden. What's that? Garden. Garden. I garden. Uh, don't look at me. I I actually set up residence in the lab when I was doing my my. Oh, you gardened. Okay. Okay. I don't. I'm, I'm kind of compulsive and I fixate on things. Garden. Oh, he, has, he also has a PhD, so I, I don't understand. Gotcha. Okay. All the dots got connected. Um, but so, so you work uh, in spurts? Is that what you're saying? You work every day? Yeah, I work. And then, when, you know, when I was, uh, the medical students are divided into two classes, preclinical and clinical. And when I was a preclinical, which means you're in the classroom a lot. Um, oh, I see. Okay. I would not be able to write very much at all. Or I could only write like during an hour or during a lunch break or if there was a really <laughs> bad class, I would cut it and go write. But that was that was very slow. Wow. 
I'm impressed. Um, okay, so you could write for an hour or two and get a little something done. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, you kind of. It was one of those things where writing ceased to be a chore. Like now, when I write, it's it's kind of day in day out, and it's really really hard. It's a chore, but then it seemed like oh, it was game. it was such a delight. It's like oh, hey, I look at me! I'm not talking. I'm not taking apart a dead person. Let me, <laughs> you know, it was All right. It was a joy, that, and like, and I'm that sure the grass is always greener on the corpse you're not dissecting, and so, um, <laughs> and so I'm sure once you know I turned all, all these books in and I go back into the clinic. Right now, all I do is whine and see like eh, I wish I were in the hospital. I'm sure. Oh, the reverse will be true when I'm yeah no that makes sense I that, can't yeah. I can't help you with that one <laughs> I'm not gonna what's be beating you with a dead person <laughs> back to anatomy um, what's my regimen well uh, for this year at least I have the luxury of being a full-time <laughs> author um We'll see if that lasts, but that I'm doing this for this one year. And so my current regimen is get up, not at noon, a little before that, <laughs> like around eight. Um, and um, <laughs> lollygag around for a while, drink a lot of tea, exercise, and then um, eat, and then drink some more tea, and then <laughs> do some so social media stuff and fart around, and then usually around two o'clock I write. And I uh, I have to do two thousand words at least every single day. Ah, so that's the old um, Fred Pohl mm -hmm. regimen. And I use ruthless bribery on myself. So you know, when I get the first qu quarter of the book done, I get sushi, and when I get the whole first draft done, I get a new pair of shoes, um, which has resulted in a vast shoe collection and mercury poisoning. But uh, <laughs> that's my standard approach. Um, yeah. So you actually do two thousand words. Two thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. And I can't, like, I cannot do other things if I haven't got my word count done. That's on weekdays. I, I um, on weekends I can do other stuff. Um, but when, when she finishes, she does like a little victory dance, even though you might not be done. And then she'll like, talk to you and yeah. say like, "Oh, I'm sending you a YouTube video of a kitten," and you're like, "Oh God!" <laughs> it's true. Um, but I'm really mean to myself. Like, I can't. Um, I can't watch television. I can't do anything oh. else that day if I haven't got those 2000s down. Yeah, 2000 words is about 10 pages, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I only think in words. I'm an academic. We think in words. Do you, do you stop and count the number of words periodically? Periodically, well, yeah. It's at the bottom of the page if you're in words. Yeah, you but I'm usually... Um, I usually, at this point, I, I kind of know what my 2,000 is. Like, I'm getting better and better at predicting. Oh, I, I bet I've done about 15 because that last 500 are going to kill me. But um, And there's certainly s some passages where if I'm on a roll, I'll just keep writing it if it's working really well. Usually dialogue, but, um, yeah. Wow. But it's 2,000. It's, uh, somebody christened it the ass-in-chair policy. Although, in my case, it's ass on a big yoga ball. <laughs> you write on a yoga ball? I do. This whole she pauses every. She sets a little timer, and then we'll go like <laughs> assume like oh, no, ascending eagle secrets. position for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I break every twenty minutes to do yoga and stretch because, or at least stand up and stretch my hands How because do you of. How work with this person? This be crazy. No, I know. Shocking. Um, it's the carpal tunnel previously mentioned. Uh, they wanted to cut me open, and I am a good hippie girl at heart, and I do not think surgery is We have is amazing arguments about medicine. It's yeah, we do. It's pretty hilarious. Um, and so uh, they wanted to slice me open, and I said, hell no. I'm going to come up with something else, and I tried everything. Um, 
And the best solution for me is to write and sleep in little middies and to stop writing every 20 minutes and stretch. And it's so, no, 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 the carpal tunnel's gone. But um, it is really hard as a writer because my old pattern used to be fugue. I used to sit down and just go and I could bang out, you know, 20,000 words in a day if I was really on it. Were they all different words? (laughs) (laughs) 20,000? Yeah, I could do. Gail. Yeah, I can do 15 pages. I used to be able to do 15 pages in an hour. Were you on amphetamines at the time? I mean, that's 20,000 words? Lots and lots of tea. Oh, my God. Um, And so, like, 2,000 words seems very pathetic to me. (laughs) But, but, you know, then then there's the pain. So, you know, you make your choices. Wow. So that's mine, my, my policy. So her ideas come from a medicine ball, right? It's, the ball was because uh, one of the things was my posture that was causing the arm problem. And so if you're on a ball, you can't slouch into one position. You kind of have to wiggle around and stuff. Um, yeah, especially if your feet aren't on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, and so he has to put up with this. It's, you know, the little alarm it's goes off. hilarious, actually. <laughs> So in return, she like fixes my romantic plot in book two. So, <laughs> oh, you have a romantic. Although he plot. does, he does do yoga with me. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you you asked that question a minute ago. Somebody always says, "Where do ideas come from?" You know, and I mean, I mean to me, that was uh, somebody asked me that once. And I said, yeah, "They come from my butt." I sit, on, <laughs> I sit on for two or three hours a day. You know, I'll get a couple of ideas. You know, in front of a computer. And uh, I think that's what you're saying. If you sit on that ball, you you don't have a choice. You yeah. put the two thousand words down. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be the next scene you're working on. It can be a scene in the future. It it doesn't have to. If you're having problems with the description, move on to action. If you're having problems with an action, make something explode. You have to write. <laughs> like you just don't have a choice. You have to write those two thousand words. But you have to stay on the same and, book, right? Oh yeah. Well, like if you're on a deadline, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but. Yeah, that's the, I I will procrastinate and slack off, so I have to be very very firm with myself. Please. Um, question for both of you. I know like a lot of writers start off by being in writer groups and stuff. Like you guys have each other apparently. <laughs> Who else supports you in your writing and through like writing blocks and stuff? You want to handle this first? Um. Yeah. Uh, good friends do uh, people who are particularly interested in it um, I shy away from writing groups I've had some kind of bad experiences um, you I mean every writer is very different but finding in my opinion you know writing with someone is a bit like playing <coughs> with sandcastles you know if you're in the sand one kid you know two kids can only really build sandcastles together if they're willing to let each other's castles stand and I've been in some writers group where they're like you know they just smash it down and say like actually you need to rewrite this book with you know lesbian unicorns or whatever it is <laughs> which actually if you do that, could you like give me a point off the back end if it becomes a movie deal? Sure. Anyway, um, so I mean, I definitely, I like over the over the years, I, I have friends that I've accrued, and sometimes they're writers, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just readers, and actually, quite frankly, they're much like other writers will often try to tell you the book they would write, and that can be helpful if you need actually some rewriting, and then Gail will help me fix some parts of stories. But um, but uh, finding people who don't write, I, I I find very very useful because they they think about stories differently yeah I have 
Um, you guys will probably learn this about me by the end of this evening, but everything is sort of regimented and well-organized in my universe, or I'd really like it to be. I live in hope. Um, everything's neat and tidy and in its place. Um, and one of the things that I am fortunate enough to have is a close-knit group of friends that actually started out as a writer's group in high school. Um, and they have all sort of gone off and become other things, although some of them still write just not very much anymore. Um, and I have kept them as my betas. <laughs> and there are about six of them. Um, and so, and I have different ones I call on for different reasons. And, and there will be a telephone call. Um, will you come and have Chinese food with me? Because I need an outline for <laughs> this project. Um, and we'll just have a conversation about the concept for a book with one of these betas. Or another one will take a look at the consistency errors. And another one just does great typo checks and that kind of a thing. Um, so, yeah, there are these six girls who I call on in cases of emergency. And pretty regularly, um, they get the email that says, are, are you, I'm, I'm about to write another book. Are you guys in? Because, you know, <laughs> some of them are going to have to sacrifice whole weekends to my writerly career. And I'm just blessed and really, really lucky that they're willing still to do that. <laughs> All girls? All of them are girls. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Which is why every time I get a straight male reader fan, I'm slightly surprised by it. Do <laughs> <laughs> so you think most of your readers are women, actually? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm, huh. I would say, yeah. Is that true? You guys would know. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> why is that? How does that work? Female protagonist. And it's sexy, too. It is, and there's some sex. And the first one is pink. <laughs> and what? The first one's cover is pink. <laughs> what did you say? What was pink? Oh, it's pink. Okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, Miss Levine, uh, the librarian, you you are a fan of these books, right? So why? What what's their special thing? Well, I guess actually I was introduced to it by somebody who works in a bookstore who used to be as a teen was a book reviewer for me and then went on to, to uh, work in the bookstore. The um, advanced reading copy had been sent to me and I didn't get a chance to look at it for a very long time because it was being passed from uh, teen to teen to not any more teen but close to being teen. Um, and they kept telling me, you have to read this book. And this was for uh, an award that, committee. Does. Was that for Solus? Yeah, that's the first one. Yes, I haven't read the second one yet. <laughs> So that's kind of unusual. Uh, uh, Bound Galley sent out for a, a rack yeah. size paperback. Yeah, actually. they were. They were. Orbit was great. Orbit is a, a young publishing house, and so they have a real kind of novel and mixed approach to promotion. Um, and they're allowed it, at least currently. We'll see. Now, who is Orbit? They're a Hachette. I would. They're a subsidiary. Yeah, of somebody. but they were one. They're Hachette. They're actually a subsidiary of Stephanie Meyer. Like, <laughs> no, you think Absolutely. I'm kidding. You think I'm kidding. No, no. My arc yeah. was made with Stephanie Meyer money, that's for sure. Um, although she's not Orbit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it does mean that they're willing to try new things, and um, they listened to their author um, on some very strange things like cover art. 
Um, you had input and cover art? Yeah, that, cover I chose that picture that's on the first book. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> Um, they didn't know what to do with my book. They, they bought it. They, they, they liked it. They were excited about it. But they had no idea how to, what to wrap it in. It's fantasy and steampunk and urban fantasy and romance and alt history and all of these things. And they just were totally mystified by what to do with it, I think. Um, and so they met me at a convention and vetted me to make sure I wasn't one of those authors. And uh, when what are you saying about us? <laughs> <laughs> when it turned out that I wasn't, um, they said, well, you know, if you come across an image, why don't you just send it our way if you find something that kind of looks like Alexia or whatever. And the image that's on the first book, I've, I found it on a steampunk live journal fashion website. And I was like, well, that kind of looks like Alexia. Um, it's a little skinny, but eh. Um, and so I just sent it to them. And then, of course, I didn't hear anything because this is how publishing works. The authors never hear anything ever. Um, for months and then the model who's on the cover friended me on Facebook and said I'm signing the contract for your book <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that they'd gone and tracked down that actual image and who the rights holder was it turned out to be the model and uh, negotiated with her for the book and that's Donna I've met her we've become really close friends and uh, they used a second shot from the same photo shoot for the second book and then Donna did a photo shoot for the third book and she called me up to find out how she should do her hair and uh, her makeup and all those sorts of things. So I really uh, got, and that's just because we're friends. <laughs> Orva doesn't know that bit. <laughs> and what the parasol should look like and all those sorts of things. Um, so I, I've had much more of a hand in my covers than any author does. That's really, really unusual. I can tell you that it, it is. Yes. Yeah. I used to. Yeah. I used to work in publishing and they had a, they used to have a, uh, they'd hire security to keep authors out of the building. <laughs> I mean, man, it's the last thing you want. Well, we don't, I mean, we don't know what sells. We've got no idea what, what markets, right? That's the, that's the attitude. And, and I really just sent them the image because I thought I was cool. You know, I didn't know. But I, I, it's, it's done me proud. People have picked Seems up this book because of the cover. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. We have three more questions. Oh, come on. Rena. A day job. She's a full-time writer. He's a medical student. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, I, I would. I very much do not want to give up. I couldn't give up medicine. It's kind of, uh, it's part of who I am. And I, I would be kind of rudderless as a writer without it. Um, you'd have to read the whole book and think really hard how medicine relates to it, but I can assure you it does. Um, and Stanford has provided me with amazing mentors. Uh, Stanford is kind of the mecca of MDs who write. My mentor is a fellow by the name of Abraham Verghese who wrote Oh my a God, book. I know Verghese's stuff. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book called Cutting for Stone, which has been on the bestseller list since I don't know when, but I, you know, I see Abraham most days. And... Uh, uh, you know, he was, when I was a first year, I got to meet him and he said, oh, you poor bastard. <laughs> you know, he was like, I at least waited till I was in my fellowship and you're starting as a med student? What are you? Um, yeah, interesting story. Also, he doesn't, he, he's not a genre reader. He, he looked at my book and he's like, I don't get it. What, what do you mean? Magic. And, and I said, give the book to your son and his son loves it. And so, uh, so he, he, he has not read it. But, um, so there are, and like medicine is kind of the intersection of, of kind of humanism limitation, 
science, uh, there's a little bit of art, and uh, it attracts a lot of people that want to kind of make the two meet. There are a lot of uh, MD-PhDs who run a lab as well as see patients. There are a lot of uh, physician and entrepreneurs that start companies. There are a lot of physician activists. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of doesn't seem intuitive, but uh, medicine uh, kind of requires, because it's... It sounds kind of crazy, but it's so all-consuming. You have to find something else that's equally as consuming to kind of cancel each other out. And uh, the, for me, that's that's writing. Yeah. Well, um, Chekhov was a doctor, right? He was, and William Carlos Williams. William was, Carlos so. Williams. And who's the guy that wrote uh, um, the most successful science fiction? Michael Wright never practiced. Mike and uh, <laughs> most doctors, if you say, oh, he's a doctor, they'll be like, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then they will say, and he has a little trouble with something called science. <laughs> so well, he, I would agree with that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's persona non grata. He's a persona non grata in science fiction as well, because but he's he was a huge success. He was. Um, cool. What about you? Well, um, I think Rena was asking about my day job and the sense of practicing as an archaeologist, which. Um, Fortunately, a practicing archaeologist usually has about a month of work every year during the summertime <laughs> on a dig somewhere. Um, and my uh, excavation is in Peru. And I got, I've been there the last couple of years. But unfortunately, I had one of those things where writing um, beat out the day job. And I won't be going this year. Um, so uh, the answer to the question is I've given it up. Uh, hopefully I'll be going back again next year, but uh, the timing just wasn't right this year uh, because I really wanted to go to the um, Worldcon in Australia this year, and uh, that happens to fall right in the middle of excavation season. So um, I'm going to World. I'm going to Australia and not to Peru. Well, with me. <laughs> where where she is a finalist for the um, Campbell Campbell Award. So if you can vote, yes. Oh, think good of me. For you. And you also won a, some kind of ALA award, right? Some kind of, yeah. I won the Alex Award, which uh, was that? which it turns out that lady there was on the committee for. Um, the Alex Award is ten awards given to adult fiction that is likely to appeal to young adults, or sort of adult that's kind of crosses over into young adult. And I was actually very, very honored to get that award because I started out as a young adult writer. That's always kind of what I want to write. Um, and I hope to write young adult stories in the future. Um, so yeah, the, the Alex was really a great honor for me because it's kind of what I was hoping for. I really, I, I, I mean, there, there, is, there, is, there is sexy in my books, but I'm, I try and be kind of genteel about it. I don't, I don't name anything. <laughs> I don't name any parts. Um, and, peri and periodically, I kind of Rosamund Pilcher people, which uh, Rosamund Pilcher is famous for saying, I always leave my characters at the bedroom door. Um, so sometimes I will do that as well. <laughs> they do it in the door? <laughs> Uh, ran across your book in the first place was due to 
the most astonishing, amazing book launch party I have ever seen. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think that left a huge impression. Considering the attendance of the World Fantasy Convention, I think that left a great impression in people's minds. That was an amazing oh. event you put on. Oh, thank you. It was all my friends. It was pure coincidence, actually, because my book happened to be launching right around the time that World Fantasy happened to be in San Jose, and I happened to be living in Los Gatos at the time, and so I could call on all my local contacts, and I basically laid it out and said, all right, all you guys, I'd been to uh, 32 weddings in the past two summers, <laughs> and I said, I'm, this is payback. <laughs> some of those I was in, some of those I cooked for, some of those I organized, and I said, all you guys, there's n it's highly unlikely there will be a wedding in my future or a baby shower, which are now coming up <laughs> for me. This, um, so it, this is my child, and um, let's, let's launch it. And they all they came up trumps. They love, uh, my friends are big foodies, and they love cooking, and they love cooking under guidance. And so uh, I was like, okay, we're going to throw a Victorian high tea steampunk style. And they just went bonkers. <laughs> so I'm glad you appreciated it, and it was really, really fun, and it's never going to happen again. San Jose last October were very lucky to be there. I don't know. Very few people here probably were there, but what you knew. I was there. I was there. They took over a great suite across from the main hospitality suite and put on this this high tea off. And it was on October 31st, which just added to the added to the element of fun of it because World Fantasy doesn't normally have costumes put on. When Halloween happens to fall during World Fantasy, <laughs> there were some costumes there. Yeah. The best petty fours and Oh, thank you. And I pulled it. I know. I, I the uh, the aforementioned Tunstall, who is my friend Paul. Um, the redheaded bleaching incident for that, which he's just now grown out, um, was for that party. Uh, he also provided the beer, which at some point Tunstall is going to get into home brewing. Is <laughs> a little <laughs> not. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was very it was fun. Um, so I'm. Um, being an equal opportunity here, I just thought I might, it's not so much a question as much as, but in read, I haven't read your book, of course, of course but uh, what Of course. I've <laughs> <laughs> only read the first part of her first book, but, uh, otherwise, it's not an important question, but there's a, there's a webcomic out there called Fans that has been running through a story that where the day the alphabet died is the storyline that is just finishing up like on page 112 of 115 because it only comes out twice a week it's been taking a while to run but the, the setup has been and it, all alphabets go null <laughs> oh dear do I owe them royalties or something oh no that sounds that sounds wonderful yeah, that sounds I, I don't remember that I don't know if it's fans.com it's just a webcomic I follow, follow that's out there but it's, the, the bad guys have managed to uh, negate Alf, the, the original Alf and huh. the, the, the first alphabet, and it's caused all every everything, all everything. The, 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 that word over there, it's just a bunch of meaningless gibberish to everybody around it, and, and, and the chaos that ensues from that. I thought that's something that you'd probably be interested in. Well, thank you. They, they owe you royalties, right? Yeah, that's better. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, actually, this has been a great evening. Uh, the best thing I can say about this evening is this is what we try to do. We try to have authors this smart, this good, and this promising, and tonight was great. Come see us again, SF and SF, and thank you both. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.